Welcome to another episode of the I Am Podcast. I'm Johnny Wilkinson and I really appreciate you being here with me today. I've got a very special offer from our podcast partner that I don't think you're going to want to miss. As you know by now at I Am, we're passionate about exploring performance and potential. We often look at this through the body, how the food we consume affects us. And this is why we've partnered with Vivo Life, who have devoted themselves to understanding how our nutrition plays a significant role in our growth, both physically and mentally. Their products are formulated by nutritionists and are 100% natural, making them the perfect choice for anyone looking to take their well-being to the next level. A big favourite at the Iron Podcast is their Perform Plant Protein, especially in cacao flavour, and their plant-based Omega-3 made from high-potency algae oil. Whichever you choose, you'll quickly understand why Vivo Life products are award-winning when you try them out. Plus, their products are delivered straight to your doorstep via carbon-neutral delivery. Vivo Life really embodies the spirit of our podcast, and we're really keen for you guys to try the products yourselves. So they agreed to run their biggest ever discount exclusively for I Am listeners. The code is I Am Podcast, all in capital letters, which will give new customers 40% off their first order and a further 15% off when they subscribe. The offer ends soon, so don't miss out. Check out their full range of products at www.vivolife.co.uk to discover how they can help you unlock your full potential. Welcome to the I Am Podcast. So you might be tuning in here because you're interested in maybe a more peaceful, effortless and inspired way of performing and uncovering potential. And if so, then great, because we're about to take another big dive into it. And this time very ably assisted by Professor Steve Peters, who is recognized globally and particularly well known to the sporting industry for all his mindset work as a consultant to over 20 Olympic and national sporting teams, including Liverpool Football Club, British Cycling, Great British Taekwondo, England Rugby, England Football, and as well as this, a whole range of individual professional players and athletes. Teachers too, students, CEOs, hospital patients, hospital staff too. He's obviously a very busy guy and an incredible one too. So I met Steve in Portugal many moons ago when he was working with the England rugby team in and around about 2007. I had a brief chance to speak to him, which I had the feeling was really going to lead somewhere. But our relationship, unfortunately, was cut a bit short. I do feel strongly it was representing, I think, a very interesting turning point for me. For him, maybe not so much. It's fascinating, though that he has managed to help support and liberate so many athletes and teams in so many different ways. It was awesome to get a taste of how he does this in our main guest episode, where he does a great job of breaking down the old me, highlighting where the issues may have lay in my approach. And I really do feel that if you find yourself struggling in some way when it comes to performing or just relating to life, I think this discussion could really help you greatly. So thank you very much. First of all, to everyone listening, just a quick note at the end to say it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for affording me this opportunity to express my passion and to follow these exciting threads in my life. Thanks for being here, supporting it, contributing, feeding back. I think you guys are awesome. Thanks also to Professor Steve Peters for his immense gift and for opening and sharing it, uh, for being willing to uh, provide opportunities and possibilities for us all to explore different things in our life. 
I wish you so, so well. I hope you keep enjoying the podcast. I hope you're able to stick with it. I hope it's having some impact in some way on your lives. My name is Johnny Wilkinson. This is the I Am Podcast with Professor Steve Peters. Steve Peters, uh, I'm so excited to have this chat. We've met before a while back. We had a, a good chat and it got cut short. I've always wanted to continue that and I can't believe I'm getting the opportunity again now. Uh, so excited to welcome you here to the I Am Podcast. How are you today? I'm I'm good. I'm good. But thank you. It's great to catch up with you again. You yeah. were great to work with previously. But a few years <laughs> have passed now. But uh, no, great. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, I, there's so much I want to explore. I know that you've got such an extensive history and bank of work that whether it be in the yeah the 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 NHS or in the the medical profession but also around all teaching work with sporting teams individuals it just it, the list goes on and on and on obviously so many of those so very very successful those teams too whether it be the cycling or the England rugby or the the Liverpool football or just you know it, it could go sort of on and on and on and the track and field stuff too but I there's so much I want to catch up with you about you've got this book out now a path through the jungle which is really exciting I want to get you to talk about that how would you sort of describe yourself and the work you do what is it you do do you think I think it's probably simplistically I'm a medical doctor who ended up my career in psychiatry and mental health and I want to bring to the public wherever they be that's education sport the health service I want to bring that accessibility to make sense of what's going on inside your head so the complex neuroscience which is my world I want to make that into very simple terminology but accessible in a very practical way that's amazing because the what's going on inside your head is obviously such a subjective experience but yeah when you talk about the scientific stuff you know and the the neuroscience and what's happening there physically is really interesting and you have to i guess bridge that gap you do what's important is it and i say that i'm sure i'll repeat it throughout whenever i work with people I, i'm an expert in what the generic mind does but i'm not an expert in the person in front of me so whenever i work with someone i've got to help them explore What's their variance on this theme? So I have a blueprint of the brain in neuroscience, but everybody is unique, which is one of the reasons that I ended up in psychiatry. I'm just fascinated working with anybody and whatever field they go into. <laughs> so therefore, I ask the person to try and understand themselves. And what I could do is ask the right questions, maybe, where somebody's caught up in the emotion or, or the situation environment they live in. So that's why it's always difficult to give like five tips for readers or five tips for listeners, because I can't do that. I, I just can't. Maybe other people can. I, I like to work with the individual. That uh, resonates so strongly to put such an enormous field, an endless field into five tips or something it just feels like a, a waste. And especially when talking about other people to try and put them in smaller boxes is almost kind of the issue that that sometimes for me feels at the base of it and with that work that you're doing how much of this has come from or has become personal passion around your own mind I think for me going back when I started in medicine you obviously were taught correctly with a medical model but I did start finding partly into my training in psychiatry I was challenging quite a bit of this thinking well it is good but sometimes that people don't fit that model and so I started looking to myself as well to think, well, you know, how does this relate to me? Because I didn't want to be a psychiatrist who kept falling apart. And at the time, I felt I was. <laughs> I felt, you know, I didn't deal with situations. I didn't deal with me. And what I didn't get was these emotions. 
But I think it all started to crystallise when uh, I had a particular patient, I can't give details, obviously it's confidentiality, who came in and we actually had an, somebody who'd cancelled an appointment. So I had time to actually discuss with this patient a little bit wider than just their depressive feelings. And, and that was a real light bulb moment because the more I talked and listened, the more I thought, I'm actually speaking to a number of parts of the brain and I'm getting very different answers depending on what questions I ask. And so that was the beginning of me thinking, I've got to go to the neuroscience here. And then I've got to apply it to myself and make sense of myself first before I can go and help other people. So that was the start of it all. That's amazing. I've been in front of lots of professional services in this way in terms of, you know, whether it be psychiatrist or or psychologist or, or in, in various different areas. And you, you always kind of, it's always been a, an interesting one for me to sit there. And it's always been one that I've been very wary of, even even in coaching that I do, which often involves moving around the mental and emotional spaces as well, to ever come across that I have the answer. Because I'm almost like, I guess I am the answer. And, and at one point, I know for myself that I'm constantly, as you said, I'm, well, I'm, I'm in challenge constantly. I'm exploring these things. And that's been a real fascination of mine as to, as to, understand where purpose and where passion and ambition resistance all these things sort of turn up so with regard to your yourself what would you say is what you're seeing in front of you in terms of your exploration what's the most fundamental recurring issue you see that seems to be limiting people in their experience because having worked in sport a lot if you said look this is often in there what might it be? I think if we step back instead of doing like individual problems, you look for principles. That's how I operate. This is what works for me. So one of the principles is where are you putting your focus? So if you sort of get people who are saying, I'm having a struggle with this person or I'm having a struggle with my confidence, or I, I want to know where is your focus at this point and how are you approaching your outcome objective? What is it you want to happen? And I find that what a lot of people do is they don't know where to place their focus in order to achieve their outcome. And even worse, they don't know what their outcome objective is. So even in conversations, and you say you're having a conversation with a player with a coach, and you, you ask the player or the coach, at the end of the conversation, what are you trying to achieve? What's the message going to do? And what effect will it have on the person? And is this the desired outcome that you want? And often when you do that, sometimes they've got it, but often they haven't. So therefore they approach the conversation in a certain manner and fail to get the outcome. And so I don't want to make it too logical and rational because we're emotional beings. But on the other hand, rationality comes into a strong force in my world to say, let's define what the plan of action is. So, so the biggest thing I find is people don't have robust plans. They just go and react to the world and react to situations and they don't forward plan. And this sort of takes me in the circle of, well, why would you do this? Because we all recognise that sometimes if I just thought about it, it's obvious. So why don't we just think about it? And people give me excuses like it's, I don't have time and things happen quickly. But these to me are a bit excuses because I think it's more we don't understand what the mind is doing. So when the mind throws these things at us and tries to react and we don't reflect and have a plan to stop that reaction, then we'll continue to keep reacting to the world. 
So it's important not to react. I do this in, in the book, A Path to the Jungle, where I'm saying don't react, respond, because these are two different parts of the brain trying to work. And we tend to work with the reactive part of the brain, so we just react to situations. Responding is saying, let me just assess the situation. What's the best plan of action? And there's a difference in the two. One of them, we have to pause, and that's the problem. We don't pause. Our brains tend to just go straight in. Within this podcast there's often been the mention or the appearance of the survival type of state and then the more create state which tends to for me anyway in my experience of this that the response state seems to be driven a lot more through that passion and that ambition and that that sort of almost spontaneity you know the freedom the liberation of and it feels very very easy a lot more effortless the survival side seems to be hugely thought-based and obviously it does feel like a, a lot of striving and a lot of, of kind of resistance and stress. When you mention those two sides of the brain, do they fit into that distinction or is it slightly different? They do. I think what we tend to do when we work with this, we think of things in black and white terms and clearly nothing is like that, shades of grey. So even in a reactive brain, which we're saying is survival mode, that can be extremely advantageous if we use that, say, even in sport. It can actually have a big plus, provided we manage that. So I'm not saying it's a negative. I think it's how you manage it. And the other area where you're thinking, let's have a more spontaneous, logical approach can actually be very detrimental if it's not used. So when I'm working with people, you need to learn the systems, but then learn which one should I be using at what point. Otherwise, you end up trying to annul one of the systems, and our survival system usually gets us where we want to go, and it gives us drive and motivation. So therefore, you've got to recognize it and say, right, what is my survival system telling me? So I want to just push that point is to say that the, when you said what do most people come in with, it's managing the emotional aspects of their life. It's managing the not just emotion, but emotional thinking. So overreactive thinking or paranoid thinking or defensive thinking, these are all emotionally based aspects of the brain. And that's the biggest factor that comes in. How do I manage this? Because that can create decision-making problems or even freezing problems where I just don't move, I can't make a decision even, that part of the brain comes to the table all the time. And with those emotional thinking reactions, what's really interesting to me is, say for example, if I took my sport as a whole, not that I was probably deep enough to, to recognise this at the time, but in the middle of this crazy action, the, the ball's flying and it, it's 100 miles an hour and yet within it, it seems like there's a serenity within me as your as, as your kind of just finding exactly the, the navigating the route almost effortlessly and then the referee blows his whistle and says right you've got a penalty and now it's my turn to kick the ball now with that time when the, the someone brings the tee on and you set the ball up I almost become unrecognizable to that previous me who was doing what would be such difficult unknown things with such ease but who would then be now doing something that I've practiced so, so much and have become so familiar with and re rehearsed all these patterns and so on. And yet my mind is so much more seemingly in my way, emotionally reacting towards in terms of, I don't want it to miss here. What would happen if I miss this? What's the score? What's everyone thinking? Oh gosh, you know, can I do this? Am I able? And yet a minute ago, you're doing something which 
if you tried to think about it, you, it would, you'd freeze. It's too much. And yet you do it effortlessly. What's, what do you think is happening there? Okay, this is why I introduced the chimp model. Because otherwise it gets so complicated to start using terminology that people say, well, which part of the brain is that? What do you mean? So I said, let's try and make it really simple so we can understand it. So you've got the two thinking systems. And what I'm, we're saying is this defensive paranoid almost, it's brilliant system is the chimp system because we share that with the chimpanzee. So we know that when we look at the hominid group, that is the closest for thinking, not genetically the closest of the ape group to the human. So we have that, and then we have the human, as I call it, which is effectively in the head. It's the areas of executive skills. So we rationally think things, put them together logically. But the bulk of the brain isn't either of those. The bulk of the brain is literally a computer system. And what it does is it, it either advises the chimp or human with beliefs, or it takes over. So if we look at you and I put a functional MRI scanner on your brain, and I'll try and keep this fairly straightforward, not get too complex, when you're running and doing all these maneuvers that you've practiced over and over, at that point, your focus, I mentioned before, is on the process of what you're doing. So I'm expecting if your chimp brain is silent and your human is silent, the computer gets on with its job. So you're now in your own little zone. And this is effectively in the floor. And the accuracy you'll get is very high because you're process driven and you just you, you've silenced them either accidentally or skilled to silence them. You can silence them, you learn to manage your mind. However, when you said the whistle blows and this, this is kick, now you've described exactly what I said about emotional thinking. These bizarre thoughts on emotions are, what if I miss? What's the consequence? What are the crowd thinking? Everyone's looking at me. All these thoughts are really unhelpful because you're describing them in a very negative way. Now, just to be contrary to that, you might have said to me, those thoughts really help me. So I'm mm. not saying remove them. I'm saying to you, let's understand what you're getting. You tell me if you think that helps or not. From a point of view neuroscience-wise, they don't help. They're actually going to distract you because you know just as much as you've gone and weaved your way through the field automatically, which is what the computer can do. It can automatically program it. The kicking the ball is automatic. You know, you just, you've done it a million times. Of course, yeah. you know. So therefore, there isn't a problem with kicking the ball. But what you're saying to me is, I'm trying to stay in computer mode, but my chimp brain is trying to warn me of the danger, and that's not helping me. So if I were now looking at you, I'd be saying, well, let's have a look. How do we settle that part of the brain and actually get it to go silent? And in fact, can we do that? So this, I'm feeling really old now, 30 years ago, <laughs> that was the question I asked in the late 90s, is can somebody silence this part of the brain or is it inevitable it will take over? I was a bit slow, I was say, on the uptake here because I believed at that point I could give them a process and that was a learning point for me. I can't give you a process. What I can give you is a skill and that's very different. I mean, some days it doesn't work, but most days it will. And the more you practice this mental skill of silencing the chimp brain, the better you get at it. But there could be a day when it gets out of order and then you need an emergency plan. So you're managing that part. So therefore, I would work with you if you said that's what's happening. My first question is, is it helping you or is it hindering you? And if you said it's definitely not something I welcome and it's not helpful, then what I would do now is I'd say, because you're unique and you've told me that, right, let's look at how you process and focus on the bits of the brain you want to, silence that chimp and get the ball where you want it to be. So how we silence the chimp now becomes difficult. 
because it depends what your beliefs are because the, the most of the things that silence that part of the brain are the beliefs we have. So, for example, if I'm about to kick that ball and I think, yeah, it could go straight and everyone could boo and I'll be unpopular, but actually I don't honestly care, you know, then that part of the brain goes, okay, there's no, no job for me because you've told me there's no danger because you don't care. Now, it's unlikely I'll say that, but some people do. However, I might say, look, at the end of the day, all I can do is my best. That I absolutely believe. And some days I'll get it wrong and some days I won't. But what I can say to all the fans and the people around me, you're going to get my best. And if it goes off and I don't get there, I couldn't have done any more for you. If that, if that resonates with you, then that's one of the beliefs we can put in place that you can use. And that, if it's effective, will silence the chimp because the chimp's there to warn you of danger and you're saying there isn't one. So it's like having a child where you reassure the child and they calm down. But it's very important that those words, whatever you're going to say, resonate with you. And they've got to be really solid. And again, this is it's complex, Johnny, because you might say that works and then three kicks later it didn't work. Yeah. yeah. So you know, so we have it's a fluid system. We have to come up Absolutely. with something better. What I'm not suggesting is we brainwash people because that's when I get asked for the tips. And I keep saying that that's not going to help because saying something like, you know, I'm an adult, I can deal with the outcome. Some people say, I'm an adult and I don't believe I can, you know? Whereas most people go, You're right, yeah. Adults deal with anything. I'm not a child. But but it has to resonate with the person. So I ask people the way I work with them is to give me at least five solid facts or beliefs that will settle your chimp at almost any given moment. So it's not necessarily just for kicking the ball. It can be for life in general. So I have to now work with the individual. And if somebody says, no, I can't get this, I can't get five beliefs and they don't work and I'm trying, but my skill is failing, I have a different approach then. I would now say, let's work with the chimp. Now, that's dangerous because that system is the most unstable system in the brain. So interpret it in terms of sport. This is the choke element. If the chimp decides it's not going to play, so instead of getting up with a massive drive or collapsing in on itself, it freezes. And now you've got choking in sport. So now we see the neuroscience behind choking and saying, okay, what we did didn't help. We have to get the chimp, if you're going to use it, into fight mode. But we have to recognize this, this mode in any creature is highly unstable for a good reason, that if you go into a fight for survival of any species and you suddenly realize you're not going to make it, the enemy's too strong, then you will automatically go into flight mode. So if you suddenly have a belief in the middle of a rugby match, we can't do this then it's likely your brain will flight mode. And now you'll get what typically I see is avoidance. You avoid holding on to the ball. You like to get a low profile. Yeah, yeah. And you see yeah. this a lot in team sports and, and you've got to tease out, why have you gone into flight mode? So I've rambled a lot. <laughs> um, no, at all. no, no, you haven't. You haven't. In fact, actually, it's, it's fascinating. There's too many parts there <clears throat> for me to, I'm not clever enough to order my next part of the conversation to get everything, I think, in a, into a conversation that's going to flow beautifully. But it fascinates me when you're working with people, even when I was working with myself and I was kicking that, that and working with, with uh, coaches too, is that you sometimes imagery can be fascinatingly powerful. You mentioned about where's your attention going, where's your focus and how that's kind of dictated a bit, I guess, by the beliefs you have and imagery can be fascinating 
and always that imagery of liberation around coming back to that childlike state of just doing it for doing it, doing it for the love of it, bringing it down to that absolute minutiae of the process where the process becomes just one tiny part which feels so easy and sort of controllable and exciting and in order to do that you have to let go of this belief that somehow you're kicking a ball 50 meters and just realize you're just kicking a ball and that the 50 meters will look after itself but imagery helps talking emotionally connecting with the person through their beliefs as to what kind of imagery according to their personality but this again what you just said it works for one kick it may not even work for the next kick it can move that quickly the need for the updating and to reassess but also the issue with constantly logically trying to work something out is that your mechanism for each kick becomes a thousand different thoughts and things which then becomes way too much exactly so again keep it simple uh, which is a phrase a lot of people say and it's the reason is we can't keep jumping around because Actually, if you go into this like logical, rational thinking mode, your action time is the slowest it's going to be. It's the worst part of the brain to use. So I don't advise people going to this rational human during sport. But again, to try and give a balance to that, if I'm working with, say, a golfer, then it probably is wise to go in while you're walking because you don't <laughs> want to stay in this computer mode because it's not possible. So they spend half the time panicking about not being in the computer mode. So, And that's not helpful. The answer is you can switch your brain within seconds if you've got the skill. So don't worry about it. So I've worked with athletes who right up till the moment they compete are really not even focused. But they've yeah. learned over years of working to, how to click straight in and mean business. And they do extremely well. I'm not advocating that, but I do do a mental warm-up, which is quite rigorous to say, let's work with the science of the brain of how we go through getting you in the right position. But it will dovetail down to uniqueness again. You know, because some people, they don't need this. They might need one word. One of the things people always say is, what do you say to athletes or anybody who's going out to compete? What do you say to them? And I, and I always say, I don't know. And I've been ribbed for that. You're the expert. You don't know. And I said, because I don't know what they want me to say unless they tell me. So it's not my job to dive in and start doing something. My job is to get you ready well before. And on the day, say, do you want me to be nearby? Do you? I've often worked with teams where I've done a thumb sign. So if a thumb is up, it means go away. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> uh, if a thumb is across, means just hover in eyesight, just in case. And yeah. a thumbs down yeah. mean I'm not in a good place here. Get here quick. Get here yeah, quick. Get yeah. here quick. I'll come while I'm warming up. Let's just chat. Yeah. Uh, and so you get a working relationship. Like any coach, a physical coach, has a, a plan of action for a particular match. And then they run you through it and warm you up and they encourage you. But you're doing the warming up. And so the mind is just the same for me. I'm, I'm a mind coach. So I help people to warm up in the way that suits them on that day and for what the occasion is. And I've got to, like any coach, I've got to learn my athlete. I've got to know them really well. So we become a working team. But my, my own view is, as a psych working in this, is I, I should be pretty invisible you know, and know when to get out of the way and not get in the way of people. So sometimes when you work with someone for years, you, you just need to be around, you know, and, and they don't need you. But occasionally yeah, they do. Oh, well, I mean, I know from my experience that there's been times, I mentioned this before, that you mentioned about, and it's bizarre because you mentioned about the constant updating. I really want to go into this because I can look through my career and there's been times where it all is just so simple. Yes, it's challenging, but there's this, deeper seemingly grounding that just says 
or at least even not, it doesn't verbalize, but somehow it's there that says it's all going to be good. And it's incredible. But when that's not there, you can find yourself, you know, I remember a couple of games, one I, I was, I was genuinely considering, you know, talking about seeing a physio and telling my hamstrings bad when it wasn't. I mean, it's crazy to think that you've worked this hard to get here and your passion, your drive and your your love for the game has sent you here and you've always dreamt of this and now you're there. You're half thinking, not just half, but close to thinking, I just can't do this. Other games, I remember going out and doing a, a kicking warm-up before a, a big final for a club team and uh, the, it just wasn't at all going well and suddenly that grounding comes away. And I remember being in the change room beforehand in the toilet trying to ring my coach. As you said, that would have been a thumbs down moment for sure. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm there trying to ring my coach and it's two minutes to go before kickoff. I mean, it's it's amazing how you can fluctuate and how there isn't this one size fits all for, for a start, but then there isn't also a one size fits that person. Exactly. Either. That it's, person evolves. Yeah. It's very fluid. and I mean, what you've said to there is common experience. Because if you think about this, the brain is, when you go into primitive defense mode, which you're doing by going into sport, by going into sport, you're employing the chimp brain, you're employing the brain that says, I want dominance, I want success, I want to beat the enemy. That is what it's there for, to get territorial gains. So it makes sense, you've provoked it. But what it's now doing to you is saying, you're going out there and you're going to die. That's what it's saying. You <laughs> exactly know, what it's you're saying. saying it's everything, everything will change. Yeah. 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 And you're saying, no, it's the end of the world. And it, it's now doing its job. But let's say that we'd been working together just before this. And we said, let's just preempt that in case it happens to you. And what would you do? So there you've got a situation. And I'm not judging you, but you've said, right, you didn't have a plan. So you're running into the toilet trying to ring your coach, which clearly would not have been the plan, I assume. Because the plan for me would have been, well, stop and say this. Let me turn it on its head. When you said, I've got these thoughts, if I if tell the physio, I can't do it. You're perceiving these from what you've said. Correct me if I'm wrong. They, these aren't helpful. They're negative thoughts. I'm going to turn them around and say these are fantastic positive thoughts. So now perceive it differently. I'll tell you why. What the chimp brain is doing is giving you an offer. It's trying to suggest that we can't cope. And then it's saying, if I'm right, because that's his job, to warn you. So it's now warning you and saying, this is really dangerous. I don't think we're going to get there. What it's not saying is get out of here. It's not actually saying that. It's saying, if you don't have a plan, then we need to exit. But if you think of those words it's giving you, like pretend you've got a hamstring problem, you know, oh, we're going to fail. The end of the world is coming. It's meant to be extremely painful. It's meant to be catastrophic. It's meant to be emotionally disturbing because it's trying to get your attention and it's asking you to come up with an answer. Now, if you don't come up with an answer, then it will increase the intensity. So the answer is to get is we need that answer before we get to that position. We're going to assume it's going to happen because that's its job. So nearly all athletes I've worked with have experienced this. You know, out of the blue sometimes athletes will say to me, I've never had that before. And I get even to the Olympics. I had an Olympian I worked with. And on the day of competition, I had a meltdown. So I've never, ever had a meltdown. But the point is we preempted the meltdown just in case. So there was a plan of action, which meant we welcomed the comments from the chimp. We welcomed the unsettling nature because that was a great offer. And now we had an answer. And that is 
I've made it this far. I'm not throwing away my career on the back of a concern you've got because it's not a concern. So we had answers for this. And we had more than answers. We had a plan. This is what I'm doing. So, and then depending on the athlete, I don't know what the plan would be, but it can be something very simple like distraction. It doesn't have to be extremely neuroscientifically complex. We work what works for that person. So we look at things of what they say, that would help me. It might even be, I don't advocate this, but I've seen it work. It might be in that dressing room. I want you to look at the other guys and think how strong they are, because you'll see them are strong. And that can sometimes turn it round. You think, you know, I'm with the team here. I'm not alone because it is a team. Yours is not an individual sport. So in a team sport, sometimes people say that really resonates or even better, which we get in track and field relay runners. We often call them relay runners because for some reason they seem to get up better in a relay than individual. And there's possibly, <laughs> there's possibly some evidence for it. I don't know. But the reason might be, again, that some people are genuine team players and they don't want to let people down. So again, if you said your chimp's given me these terrible thoughts in the dressing room, look around the room and say, do you want to let the team down? The chimp will now flick on its head because its other drive is the troop drive. So it will want to support the troop at all costs, even to sacrifice itself. At that point, if it resonates, the athlete might say, I've got this energy I didn't have before. So again, you can see why... When I work with someone, it's quite complex because I've got to understand the person and what, what's in the head and their belief systems. And this is only where I work. I'm not saying this is how people should work. But when I've done a thorough understanding and they say, I'm beginning to understand myself, and we recognize it outside of sport, not just in sport, but general ways I work. Then when we've got that, we now look at where they're taking me. So whether that's working with the police, doctors, teachers, or sports people, they take me to their world. Now, I have to learn their world. So I remember getting called up to, to say, would I be uh, keen to work with England rugby? And I'd said yes. And I think I went to Portugal to a training camp. I remember. I blame, I remember, yeah. I blame you for this. Because <laughs> I, I don't know if you give the press a tip-off, but somebody said, Johnny's told them they got this forensic psychiatrist. And at that point, I was trying to keep undercover. I did not want the limelight because I felt, hey, I'm just a doctor here. I'm not a trained sports psychologist, which are the experts. And I'm doing something a bit off the wall the way I operate. But I went to Portugal, I remember doing a talk to the lads and I was ribbed a little by one or two of them. I won't mention who it was. I don't remember, I stopped the, the actual presentation and I just thought, I've said enough, they've got the gist of it. And yeah. I, was, I was really, really surprised that I think it was 26 of the team asked to speak to me. And I felt then yeah. that was a privilege. So I then started, I worked down in Bath with you. And that was an eye-opener because I had to learn rugby. So I didn't know, which is what I said when the lads came. I remember saying one of the, at the time, one of my biggest sort of like fours and he became an advocate. I, I said to him, I'm not telling you what to do because I haven't got a clue. And I really haven't got yeah. a clue. I'm not just saying that. I'm saying, you've got to tell me what it is you're trying to do, why you're doing it. All I'm going to do is soundboard and challenge. And that meant I learned about rugby. I learned what kind of things would succeed. But the coaches, the, the other staff supporting, your team manager, that was... I feel what really helped me because I understood it and then I give my suggestions. So it was a great thing to work with you. It's a shame you got to the final and didn't quite get over the line. It didn't quite <laughs> get over the line. It's, it's, uh, it's the beliefs you mention underneath everything because you, you keep mentioning outside of sport as well. And of course, this is when we actually spoke in Portugal, which is the chat I'm talking about. I'd never spoken about my inner workings to anyone 
with respect to the game. I had had interventions outside of the game, but never within the game. Because the game had always seemed to be a bit of an escape for me. But the thing is, it wasn't. It was also a manifestation of those beliefs that were essentially creating a massive issue out of this game. What started as a as a child is enormous passion and, and drive and excitement. You, I mean, you just see any photo of me when I'm young. I've got a rugby ball in my hands. You couldn't get it off me. But then I also had this other belief system in there, which was around competition. It was not okay to lose or to fail or make mistakes or essentially not be perfect. And sort of part of my journey as I kept meeting these crises points, you know, I mean, it's what I want to talk to you even about the fascination with the fact that someone that has that kind of belief system, why on earth would you head into professional elite sport where every weekend you are putting yourself right in the face of that which scares you the most? The only other thing I think that could have been worse was for me was be going to war, you know, where where it is actually life and death. But I was making it life and death every weekend and the more and more people that got to watch and commented, you know, the bigger that got. But for me, that that kind of constant challenge just meant crisis moment after crisis moment after crisis moments, which then led to anxiety, panic, massive stress, and always then left me in a state of, of probably depression for a long time. And then I kind of came out of it. And as I got older with these I started to explore much deeper into what it was instead of just trying to get through it it was a case of saying look fundamentally what's happening at the level of my beliefs but then more importantly what's happening at the level of no belief you know as in like if I'm if I'm always swapping out beliefs what happens when there's no belief about something etc how can I have that that sort of freedom and it's it's interesting because what I'm getting to is the fact that underneath all those the ultimate belief was that when I felt the grounding of unworthy, I can my, that I will survive this if my identity or reputation might not survive the way it is, but I will. And I think when you mentioned about that rigorous warm up just a while back, I remember kicking myself and, and and other people kicking when I've been there. And in between kicks, they're telling you about some comedy show they've been watching and how funny it was and what an awesome time they've had. They put the ball down. And they crush it. And it's just inevitable. And they put another ball down. And in between, they're telling you about what they're up to next summer, what holiday they've booked. They're almost creating this world. And within it, the kick just has to be according to that energy they're in. And I'm sort of looking at this from my state being, what's what's creating those beliefs at the start? But you mentioned about the brain being that big computer, but it's working through a system of information and data. What's that information and data that makes us all unique and how are we constructing it that you know even identical twins can have a similar upbringing but can have such different belief systems you know what do you make of that because changing beliefs is is sort of great but what can be done earlier to sort of assist you know with that kind of conditioning yeah it's it's great obviously this opens a massive bag of worms here the problem is it starts, if you look at the research, I'll be nerdy now, we start really early on. We're given a genetic loading of how we're going to be personality-wise. So there is a genetic loading, and we sort of accept this. And then by the time you're around four, you start to process information. And it's at this point that the impact begins. So we start our belief system and resilience training at around four. And there's a lot of research to show this, depending on what you do with the child at this point, is what they'll be like in 10 years' time. 
So how you interact with the child and how you ask the child to take responsibility for their emotions will dictate what they do as an adult. That doesn't mean if we don't get it right at that point as people start getting the guilt trip uh, from parents and I've done it all wrong. As long as you love the child, it's got the best basis. We can rectify it, yes, we can do. So we can train resilience. So this is the biggest interest I've got is how do we learn to be robust and resilient in everyday life? Never mind in sports. Exactly what you've said. How can some people just seem to just take things in their stride, whereas most of us don't? And if something happens to us that's really unpleasant, we tend to feel awful. And how do we get over that rather than having sleepless nights and continually visiting the same thing? How do we process it? Uh, And this is sort of the areas that I really like working in. And that's why I said before I come to sport, if I'm working with you and I've got the time to to sort of get your attention on this, we look at what are your resilience factors? Uh, What's your robustness plan? And that's why I've written The Path Through the Jungle to say people kept saying, well, how do you do it yourself? It's already got access to you and you can take me through it. So I tried to write a program that says, start by understanding the mind, then work it out. So go through each of the areas that can cause problems to you. Because we are complex creatures. So as you've just said, they're talking about a program they watched on telly, but they're actually bringing their personal life into it. So, And we do that. So at the time, if you're not so good in your own mind about yourself or your relationships or your environment, your future, you bring that into even kicking the rugby ball. Because your mind is constantly consciously working away to try and solve these areas. So we know that people bring troubled minds into the workplace, whatever that workplace is. So my goal would be to look at these guys, and which I did way back, and said, what are they doing that's different to the rest of us? Now, it's complex. It can be genetically that we're given this very laid-back brain. So we know that people do get that. And you'll see this in children at three or four who just don't get bothered by anything. In case you're thinking, oh, that's terrible, my kids are all worrying, the children are laid back, tend not to do as well. So that's interesting. I was going to say exactly that, yeah. It's not yeah. often that, that, you know, that intensity is often present in those, you know, in terms of high achievement, certainly in sport and what have you. Yeah, yeah. because you want that sort of intensity. But again, it's how do you use that? So that's right, going back to exactly the same principle when you were going to kick the ball and all these voices come and you see them as negative. You know, what if the crowd boo? What if I miss? What? Instead of saying, let me see that as a positive and use that energy so that I can actually kick the ball. So you're doing the same with children at four. You're saying, what worries you if you don't paint the picture very well? And then you get that energy and say, right, well, let's channel that into being a positive force. So you're training them to understand that the brain isn't against them. It's trying to help them. And that's a very different way of looking at the world. So you can even do that with somebody my age who's never had any training. And you say, just have a reflection on, are you seeing the world as this hostile, aggressive place and your own mind is not helping you? Or are you saying the world's there, it's your world, it's what you create of it, but also your own mind, it's what you do with what your mind is giving you. It's how you use it and interpret it. So, so yes, going back to what you're saying is resilience in these guys and how do they do it? Your beliefs start coming in as young as four or five and you build them throughout life. But you can actually dig them up and say, where do you get that belief from? It isn't just that factor. It's also your parents and role models. It's also your teachers, your grandparents, your experiences early on, you know, 
it, there's so many aspects and you have to tease out which were the ones that were really weighted factors in this child because it's not the same. So one who can't draw a picture might say, so what? The other one falls apart. So you've got to say, what weighting does each child put on and why? It's, it's, so, it's so interesting as well, though, because it often comes back to this idea that, that everyone's searching for that traumatic episode that they can unpick and it's going to free them. But actually some of these, as you said, can be an accumulation of little things that you've seen and seen and added to and added to. But I also was very interested in someone was talking about how maybe children don't necessarily listen to you, they observe you. So it's all very well having the right thing to say once a day, but for the other 15, 16 waking hours, they're watching what you're doing, not listening to what you're saying. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting in that, in that perspective that it won't necessarily, you know, what is it that, as you said, watching a film, what are you taking from that? But actually if life's a film for those kids, you know, what are they seeing around them and how, what are they interpreting? Yeah. And there's a couple of points. I'm scribbling on a bit of scrap paper because I don't want to miss these because I know people are listening and I want them to get some nuances because there's a couple of points said there. One I've written down is sometimes when you say it's events and we're looking for that event to unpick and we think it's traumatic, some people don't have any traumatic events. Mm. But sometimes you can have a loss for something you never actually had and that can be traumatizing. Wow. So, for example, if a, yeah, if a child feels, even though they're in a loving, caring family they were never actually reassured in a way that resonated with them or felt wanted in a way that resonated with them even though parents had done great the child can have that sense of loss for something they never had and that's where you you get somebody in that position just needs a lot of affection and tlc and we're all varying what we need and so you can see there's no dramatic event don't dig for it it's just that this person needs more tlc and affection than most other people might so so sometimes there isn't traumatic events to unpick it's an accumulation of what the needs are that weren't met, which is very different. All right. Yeah, very and, interesting. And, and a lot yeah. of people like that. So, yeah, I was just thinking I wanted to stop you on that one. So, yeah, do so. So, the emotional communication is the one you've mentioned second is we know that research shows that when we hear somebody say something, our chimp brain listens to the music. So, it listens to the emotional way you put it across, and the human listens to what the facts are. But in the long run, we don't remember the facts, we remember the feelings. So when you talk about someone you've been with and chatted to, you don't actually remember the content a lot of the time. You just said, oh, it felt good. So it's very important when children are growing up that they feel, even though they're only chatted to, like you say, once in 16 interactions with the parent, they're watching you. They're watching to see, are you demonstrating by your actions and body language and the rest, that they're wanted, they're loved, they're respected. Because that's the triad I always go with with children. And if we demonstrate that to them in whatever way we want, then it doesn't matter what we say almost. They'll remember that. Well, it's interesting you say that because often I hear the story now or, or, or from other people or I can remember my own personal experiences when someone you rely on hugely, maybe in a rugby team, you know, you're sort of the coach and you, you're thinking, oh, you know, we had this great chat yesterday and the coach has told me this and I feel really wanted in the team. And the coach walks past in the corridor probably thinking about something else, the media, the stress of this or whatever. And you're kind of like, hey, coach. And you get blanked. And then you go to your room, you're like, oh my God, I'm going to get dropped. You know, what What? What's? What have I done? You know, I must have done something. Is it my game? I better check my, I'll try and find out. And of course, that's someone else dealing with their stuff, that, that requirement to almost, to meet your own needs, to have that ability to, to and I think sometimes how I see this, a little bit with me as, as you mentioned about venturing into those situations 
where your chimp brain is telling you you can't do this, but somehow finding a plan to to put you in those situations and be conscious enough to to see it's okay here. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's I'm good here. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go back to the corridor one because this is a really big principle, and I know a lot of people who do cognitive behavioral therapy will challenge that with you and say, right, what you, you've made an assumption here, you've jumped to an assumption, and you quite rightly logically thought he may be distracted at this point, but you've already dropped yourself from the team and gone into yeah. meltdown, which is absurd. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, yeah. people do this throughout entire day. We jump, we fill in gaps of what we think is going on, and we rarely check. So it's quite good to check your belief and say, can I just check? And he might have said, I, was, I had a splitting headache at the moment. I was just going to get some paracetamol. And you think, oh, that makes sense. And he reassures. But the key is to ask. So I'm a great advocate of saying to people, how do you feel about whatever it is you're dealing with or you or the relationship? Ask, because even if they give you a negative, like he says, I'm actually not thinking you're doing as well, that's better than not knowing. Not knowing is the stress one. So because you just your mind starts revolving, it's better to know the truth. But the good news is that generally speaking, the truth's really supportive. And, and people often forget to ask, you know, like even partners or kids' families, you know, do you, do you love me? Hopefully the answer, I'm sure it is 99% <laughs> of the time. Yes, but we forget to tell each other. And so often what we do is we only receive criticism throughout the day. So I do advocate people checking on relationships, checking on feelings. So you don't end up in this terrible place in your room. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's funny because so much of this is about that. And I'm going to put this forward something which seems to be very experientially valuable for me, or certainly speaks the truth to me, uh, is that there, there seems to be this balance. And I wonder how this computes for you between that preparation and then the performance on the field, for example, I don't sort of like distinguishing too much between performance and preparation because even the preparation is a performance of sorts. So, but the, the idea that in the change room, you have this, this kind of preparation or during the week, you've got this preparation and then match day on the field that you might decide that's your performance. And I think it's really important to have performance and, and the sorry, the preparation, the structure and the game plan and the ideas and the, all these kind of things and even training your body to be physically able to do what it's meant to do and to have pathways constructed. But if that preparation is all you've got, it's very robotic and predictable. And so what I've sort of found to be the other part is on the field that that part of you that also is open to the spontaneity, almost being in that place of saying, look, this is what we really, really, really want to do. And this is how we're going to try and do it. But we understand that as soon as we go out there, we're going to see things that we can't have fully prepared for. And there has to be that openness and that willingness and that joy and almost excitement about that unknown to allow for the response. And the response part of me, when I was responding, I feel in those games or in my moments around life now most fully is when there is this sense of needs met, feeling valuable and worthy so almost going into a, a game if, if it's like a kicker you say right we've got all these great you know this simplistic strategy that you feel great with you feel in control of and we know we've done the work but the other part is like also them going they're feeling to a degree un, yeah. un, un, undefinable so that if they do if it doesn't happen it's kind of like but you still are able to choose your next step as opposed to having that taken away from you. And preparation almost is like, okay, we're going to go out there and it's going to be brilliant. We're planning to not miss a kick, but you missed the first one. 
it's almost like, okay, well, what do you do? Well, I'll just reinvent myself as perfect and hit the second one. But that ability to just, I guess, really see the next moment as full, irrespective of what's gone on before. Like I said before, I see that that ability to respond does seem to come with a bit of a, a love for life rather than a fear of it. Yeah. I mean, you're covering a, a lot of different aspects here. There's devil in the detail. So if I just take you back and say, we'll go to the, you've done all the training, you've yeah. committed to it, so you know you can't do any more. So therefore, there's no point in challenging that as you're going on the field, because if you challenge that, then you're in no man's land. So that then you won't enter the field under threat. So you have to accept, I've done all I can, whatever I did was what I did. Same in the dressing room, I'm prepared. So you're hoping you enter the field with an opportunistic approach. It's a challenge, it's an opportunity, as opposed to it's a threat. And it's more than a challenge, it's, it's an actual challenge to my existence, not a challenge to, <laughs> to take the game on. So the challenge is where, where's the challenge? So we're looking at opportunity rather than threat. But then people will say, that's a, that's a skill. And then people say to me, well, I can't do that. As soon as I get out there, it's the crowd that it just doesn't work. So now I might go and try a different tack and say, well, let's try and get you in computer mode. Let's have you go through a robotic drill it's not ideal because, like you say, you want flexibility. But let's just go through a robotic drill but hit the ground running, all right, so we're not trying to warm up into the match because that's pretty fatal, really. That's a second possible. But now you give another point. So you, you, you're going into play and you drop the ball, and it is a schoolboy error, and you think, gee, and the crowd will boo. <laughs> They're definitely, the crowd can be fickle. <laughs> so they'll boo you, and you think, oh, I didn't mean to. You know, and you'll hear the comments even, you know, we pay him a fortune to do this. He does it every day, and he drops the ball. Mm. I can do better. You, you're going to get that, you know. The question is, like you said, how do you draw a line and go back? Now, you gave an offer which could work. It's not one I'd advocate normally, but it could work. And that's, you said, I've got to be back to perfect me and see it as perfect. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there was a half a joke in that because okay. that, that was that was mine, my way of almost continuing to suffer was never dealing with the fact that actually it's so cool that perfect is, is what is. But my idea was, the reason I mentioned that, I think it came out was as a, I kept constantly craved perfection, was so fearful of not having it. And I would miss two kicks in that game and then for the next game, I'd be perfect again, fearing not being perfect. And not at one point was I able to look and say, I wasn't perfect and I'm still here and I, and it's great. Why do I, and also how can I illogically keep claiming to be perfect and worrying about losing my perfection when according to my own values, I'm constantly imperfect. So in a way that slipped out as a kind of, no, it's a, it's one important. of my looking back. Yeah, but again, you, you used it at some point, and at that point, if I'd been working with that, I would have challenged that. I wouldn't say don't do it, because you might say, look, Steve, it works. And I'm not yeah. there to tell you to change something that works. But if you said, what you know you're explaining, it sort of works, but it doesn't really. I keep telling no, it's not it, it, no, it, it was more. It was more of a, a tool for suffering than it was for what it worked. So, yeah. how, so how can we change it? And let's say, which is common, in, in most sports, people make errors because that's why we watch. If nobody made errors, we'd have the same result every time. You know, we, we watch sport because it's a bit unpredictable and we have good and bad days. So let's say you've just done something which is definitely a fault. You've dropped the ball. How do you draw a line? Now, it has to be what something that resonates with you, but certainly you should have something in your brain ready and it's got to be computer-driven. All right, so to get your chimp brain to say, which is why I picked you up, and I accept this isn't what you do. But if if somebody did get, I'm perfect, I can do this, 
you know, the chimp's not stupid. It's saying that, but it doesn't believe it, which means it's going to keep undermining you all the time and keep your focus on, am I getting there? Are people finding the holes in my belief I'm perfect? And am I... So that's really not a helpful thing to do. It's going to, in most people, create unconscious challenge constantly, which will create stress, and that's, you know, distracting yourself. A, a possibly better route, but again, I'd have to work with a person, is to say, if I draw a line, it's not about me. It never was. It's about what you do, the process you operate within the game. You're not important. So if somebody says you're not important, forget you. It's what you do with the ball that's important. The ball's the only thing that's important in the game. Nobody else. If you if you believe that, then suddenly your self-awareness is gone, which means you now potentially could operate back into your practice rhythms. But that's a suggestion which some people find helpful. Others will say that I just it doesn't work. I still feel the crowd watching me. So it's why I said right at the beginning. I can't, I give you ideas, but at the end of the day, it really resonates with the person in front of me. And this is where I just throw a real wobbler in. This is where somebody will say suddenly to me, but it's what my dad used to tell me all the time. And you think, oh, wow, now, now we're coming back to something <laughs> now we're getting totally there. different. Now we're getting there. <laughs> exactly. And, and for yeah. some people, it's irrelevant what dad said. But for others, it had a massive impact for whatever reason in their life. And it's worth then looking at that and saying, can we have a look again at what dad was trying to do rather than what he said? You know, yeah. and we hope then you've got, you know, something good, actually. And if it's not something good, be realistic. If dad wasn't that helpful, let's accept that dads are not always helpful. You know, the reality is, let's face that. And then we get back to this idea, which I mentioned earlier. Some people can have that loss of something they never had. Why didn't I get a dad like everybody else who was on my side? But the answer is, well, that's actually not as common as people think. Yeah. So, yeah. wow. you know, parents are human beings. They do their best. So you see the complexity of this when, you know, you're talking in terms of rugby, and we've circled around this a lot. And, and I'm trying to say, which I know is not helpful for people listening, thinking, what can I take away? The answer is, I'm not sure, because you've got to, to me, we've come full circle. I'm saying what I said at the beginning. My job is to try and help you to understand yourself, because you're the expert in you, not me. What I can do is say these are the general rules of the brain, how it's structured, how it works. You will follow the blueprint, but you will have deviations to the blueprint peculiar to you. And there'll be events and experiences only you've experienced. And even if they're common events, only you will have interpreted them in your context and placed in your mindset beliefs. It's all about understanding yourself. So, for example, I'm going to pass through my own experience here. Something that I did when I was younger that I wouldn't do now, I don't think as much, although I can easily get caught up in doing it, would be I get the survival mechanism, emotional thoughts coming up. I engage them according to the meaning that I think they have rather than the, the positive opportunity that they pre present. And I go looking to solve them with my own thoughts. And by indulging them, I find myself in this process for a long time and it's, it's spiraling in on itself. And then ultimately it comes to a crisis moment where I get that I probably cause quite a lot of destruction according to the goals I wish. I'm probably moving away from them. And then there comes a bit of a crisis moment with a bit of an implosion where it's kind of like this can't go on and I bang and I get a momentary period of inspired performance where I 
just go out there and say, geez, it can't get any worse. What am I doing? Just go and give it a go. And then it creeps back in. What maybe I'm experiencing more in my life nowadays is the capacity to catch those thoughts and to almost recognize, breathe into, relax into, and find within them that more peaceful, grounded space from which there seems to be more gentle excitement returns that I can follow as a process. I'm wondering how that sits with you because the things I never was able to even consider at that time was I was a fixer. You know, I talk about archetypes and belief systems and what have you, but definitely I felt there was something missing, enormous amounts of doom around any kind of failure, not just, oh God, it's going to be tough, but absolute unsurvivable doom. So I was a fixer, but it also what it meant was that I was also desperately uncomfortable when things were going well, because it was rocky ground for me with nothing to fix. Who was I? I felt quite helpless. And example for that would be after numerous injuries, after the World Cup, I mean, numerous injuries, I turned up to play a game at an away ground and the away crowd, all sort of, there must have been sort of near 10,000 in there at the time, just cheered me as I ran out the change room. And now... I'm used to the narrative of no one gives a, you know, toss about you. They want you to fail. They don't think you can do it because that spoke to my belief system of being able to say, I'll show them me against the world, you know, problems to fix, almost saviour, but martyr at the same time. So put yourself in spaces that are dangerous and that, you know, put your body on the line almost recklessly at times, all that kind of stuff. Now that for me was was just how I fixed things. But what it did was, it, it, there's no doubt about it, it led to the years of injury, just sheer, as you mentioned, stress, constant. But now I recognise the opportunities you said to kind of, with that computer, to maybe free up the computer to do its work. You get, you've covered a lot of ground there. I'm scribbling furiously. I'll, I'll burn my notes at <laughs> the end. I said I'd challenge you. I said I'd challenge you. Yeah. yeah, it's fairly straightforward, I think, I think. I'll tell you what a principle I've got, but be devil in the detail. If you have a belief and that belief you hold to, but you don't have a secondary belief for when it's not appropriate, that belief, so you just stick with the same belief, then you're struggling when the circumstances don't test it. So let me give you your belief. You said to me, my belief is I'm a fixer. Um, but when there's nothing to fix, I'm in trouble. That's what you sent to me. That's it. That, uh, that seemed right. to be the, the feeling, yeah. Right. Well, I'm going to repeat it because you gave me another one straight after. So what you said is, there's an example is, I, I'm someone, my belief is I'm a fixer. Therefore, by what you're saying, there must always be something to fix. So when there's a circumstance, there's nothing to fix. What's your belief then? You don't have one. You haven't got a secondary yeah. belief. And the secondary belief can be simple as, when there's nothing to fix, this is my recuperation point. I need to relax. But you didn't do okay. that. What you did is stressed again because there was nothing to fix. You're stressed when you're fixing and stressing when you're not fixing. And that's no surprise then. You, you're throwing cortisol levels up like crazy, which will have effects on muscles, tendons, ligaments. You just think, and then you said, I overdid it. So there's a, a real modus operandi, and I'll show you why I think you've repeated it. You're okay being therapized in front of thousands of people. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's cool. interesting. But no, no, I, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy it, but also for me, this is reflective because I don't, I don't have those same beliefs now. 
But let me much. give you give me a sec, Mom. Go on, then, you said go. to me, <laughs> yeah. I've got to enjoy this. All right, you said to me, when you go out with a crowd, you had a belief. And your belief was that I'm going out there as a, as a martyr almost. That's going to drive me to, because I, they don't like me. They want me to fail. So I'm yeah. going to prove to them. So you had a belief that when I go out there, if there's a boo or there's no applause, then I know I'm okay because I've got. But then when you went out and applauded, you didn't have a belief. And your belief could easily have been, right, that's the sign for me to now show them what they're clapping for. But you didn't have that. Okay. So what yeah. you then said to me is when they clap, I'm disarmed because I'm no longer the martyr. So now I'm going to struggle. So there's two examples where if we probe, I may be incorrect, but I'm probably not, is I'll find that throughout your life that you'll have these beliefs ready for a stressful situation or a situation which will get the best out of you. But if that situation or environment changes, there's no secondary belief. So and a secondary belief is quite important. So you say, right, this is not appropriate, that belief anymore. So I'm not saying abandon it if it works. I'm saying when it's not appropriate, what's your second belief? So when you gave me those two examples, I just thought we probably would find quite a few where you're mm. out of depth. Where there's no, yeah, I completely agree with the no secondary belief. There's no doubt. But I think the level of intensity with which I formed those beliefs, I think younger, I can remember younger days, which, you know, when you say about, the the trauma side of it i'm not entirely sure i I can't find these major traumatic events but i certainly just remember moments of you know almost feeling absolutely uprooted by certain understandings and that that came to me or or certain revelations or whatever they were at the time but yeah there's there's definitely no doubt about their secondary belief i I imagine i would have challenged it as well in terms of saying that first belief was so stark and built upon such fear that it would have been interesting to me to see what a secondary belief, how that could have matched up almost whether it would have still been almost spoken down to by the first belief saying, look, you know, you've got to do a lot of work to prove to me that everything's okay at any point. Yeah. Just to correct that, I won't do any work. You'll do the work. All right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. convince people. What I do is ask them to reflect and and offer them suggestions. And then you look at people who are successful. And some of the things you were doing that were successful, clearly, and worked. What we're saying is, is it the only way you're going to get success? But the reflection is, can I do it in a different way? Uh, and will it work by having a different belief? But you're saying things like, even in the past, there have been events where they, you were traumatized a little bit by just having a certain belief which was shattered because what the evidence was it didn't actually hold so mm. what you're saying to me is for you as a person your beliefs appear to be extremely important extremely important and they're quite powerful so you're coming at this as very black and white very black and white there's nothing wrong with this it's not a judgment call it's an exploration of your mind to say is there an alternative way of approaching life what I often get people saying to me is, hang on, hang on. I've had this sort of like very strong approach and it's done me well, okay? And people say, if you take that off me, I, I won't be driven. It, it won't happen. There isn't any evidence to suggest that. What there is evidence is if we take off a belief which is great to get success but has side effects and has repercussions and longer-term consequence, can we get another belief which you're still driven by Without all of this high emotion, you can still get the same results. And the research would indicate you can. You can. It's finding a different approach which gives you the same results without 
having these beliefs, which can in the long term result in, in consequences which are not helpful. So this is really interesting because I recognise myself in previous days as being enormously black and white. There's no doubt about that. Um, there's other dynamics I might go into, but there's one that's very interesting to me. But yeah, very much so. And throughout periods of my life, there's been a sort of shattering of those beliefs, which has felt like enormous vulnerability and enormous, almost the thing I, I guess I was fearing most, which is a humiliation, a sense almost that what I stand for is just not, you know, there's such evidence according probably through the actual belief itself, the way that it's looking at it for that. And whether that be injury, huge defeats, just certain turning points in life that proves that actually everything you were heading for, you know, it, it doesn't happen the way you want to. And suddenly there's a realization sometimes that, that that belief system you hold simply cannot carry on through this gray, what's been put in front of it. And the, for me, what it's felt is with that humiliation time by time by time, even with a, a, the retiring and all these kind of things is there's been this massive gray and an enjoyment of the gray so much so that my personality is, is for me at least recognizably different from where I've been so much so that I can speak about where I was, but whereas and I know time maybe has something to play on this, but whereas I, I would have watched a previous game of rugby and I'd have felt very much connected to that individual. I'd have felt the the pain of each mistake the younger me makes on the video, whereas now there's an objectivity to it, but a, but a joy and a love there for it. One of the, the other dynamics that I, I want to sort of ex explain that was interesting for me was playing the first part of a career in and amongst a group of very much older kind of individuals and then being injured for four years whilst those individuals all disappeared and I became the elder to younger and suddenly that dynamic mixed in with probably being away from four years and not having that grounding being very interesting and then moving back to a club in France where I seem to be with Again, people a lot my own age, people that are older than me or just a bit same age or maybe even just slightly younger, but certainly you know, no longer in that space of you're the older one, everyone needs to look to you to make things work. And I wonder how, you know, this is the first time I've ever really thought about it since you're talking the way you are, is to be like, I think there might have been a sense of when I was younger in that team, enjoying the sense of almost proving my worth to those older guys it made simple sense whereas when you're the older guy and you're supposed to be showing the others how to do it you're almost in that space of this dynamic doesn't yeah what's the secondary belief there do you think right okay i go back right i scribble I'll you've been scribbling you've been I'm, scribbling. I'm trying desperately you, you cover a lot of ground each time i'm sorry i just no I, no I, yeah, don't I, apologize once i get going i'm off it's really good and this is how i work normally with people is i let them talk and i scribble stuff and then we go back slow just for people listening really as well and you is you mentioned your beliefs and when a belief went you felt very vulnerable because you but what you're saying to me if you think is my vulnerability or perceived vulnerability or the opposite my stability and robustness is based on beliefs and of course there, there is an element of truth in that so but if you've based your vulnerability on a fixed set of beliefs which turn out not to be so, then it's not surprising you're vulnerable. 
what I would say is go back and say, well, let's have a look at these beliefs and see why they weren't really that appropriate to build you your stability on. What could you have had as a different belief, which may actually still be running true? So actually, that might turn you around to think, I can't be vulnerable because these beliefs are definitely true and they resonate every day instead of certain beliefs. So, for example, if you've got a child particularly who says, my dad will always be on my side or my mum is always there for me and something terrible happens, but they believe their vulnerability is not in the picture if mum is always around and tragically mum dies. You can see that child had a belief that she'd always be there and therefore I'd be secure. Whereas if we go back and revisit that security and vulnerability and and confidence factors are based within ourselves and we can learn that even as adults and that can give us a different way of interpreting what happened as a child. So complex, but it meant when you mentioned that, it's very important to get the right beliefs that we base ourselves on and they should be within ourselves. Your second point on it moving, which is interesting dynamically for me, being the youngest in a team and gaining approval of the oldest, which is exactly what chimpanzees do. And this is why I said, yeah, when I looked at this, this is the troop mentality that is particularly male chimpanzees. Female chimps do the same. They do it very differently. I'm not saying humans do this. I'm saying it's what chimpanzees do. But the females have a very strong hierarchy. The males don't actually do that. What they do is they have an alpha male and they look up and try and please one man. All right. Or there may be a beta male, but the the rest, there's no hierarchy. They're all second runners. Uh, The females have strong hierarchies all the way down. And very much like we see in in groups of hens in the flock, there's a pecking order. And you've got an away of, but it's the hens. The cockerels don't have that. There's just one cockerel who dominates, the rest get out of the way. So it's interesting (laughs) that if, if, and it doesn't always follow, we can look at animals and look at ourselves, but we see this commonly that younger guys try and get this approving father figure almost, the alpha chimp, I've got to prove myself. And exactly the dynamic, suddenly you're supposed to be the alpha chimp. uh, And you think, by me, it's my job to rally around now. Mm. Now, interestingly, that's one angle. The other is, We work to the belief we have of ourselves. If you see yourself as someone who lacks confidence, then we actually live up to that. The evidence is we we will act in a way that shows our lack of confidence. If you actually get a belief, not a false belief, a true belief that you're a valid person and you've got the confidence to go out into the world and be yourself, then you will act that out. So we go on our expectations and belief about ourselves strongly. It was a very interesting experiment. I think I put this in the book. I did this with medical students. I'm, I'm at Sheffield Medical School teaching doctors to be. Uh, and I tried to show them this belief by asking them, and they didn't know what the experiment was. We recorded them walking down a corridor in the hospital. I was clinical director at the time. And I asked one of them to be me as being in charge of the hospital and, and walking down the corridor. And we filled and they walked down the centre of the corridor. And as people passed, Steve Peters. Days, they said, good morning. And then we asked three of them to pretend to be a temporary person helping out with the hospital system, but they're on a temporary contract just for the week. Incredibly, they walked on the edge of the corridor and didn't make eye contact. Now, that was astounding that it worked so well. I think I was very, very lucky that the, the guys really joined in and had fun with it. But what was astounding is it demonstrated what I'm saying, that if you have a perception of yourself, which is not good, you're likely to act out in a way which is not that helpful to you or other people. So it's really worth looking at your own self-image and saying, where am I building this from? 
And it's great to see when I've worked with people, and it is a privilege to see somebody turn their self-image around and suddenly become amazingly confident and self-worthy, and they change completely in their confidence level in what they do, everything about it. You mentioned a little bit about the vulnerability there, which for me is a really interesting space, because that vulnerability and that humiliation side, albeit than the way that I experience it, those are just words for it. The experience I have of feeling a little bit shaken up and a little bit challenged. I tend to bask in it a bit now. I leave myself there to sort of, for some reason, I, I like to just challenge that immediate feeling. And, and almost by doing so, it finds that uh, secondary stability a bit to say that, you know, there's space here. You can relax here. And also one of the things I wanted to mention about, you mentioned about that, you know, the, underneath the belief that still desire I think it's very interesting through the rugby is this desire to to do this and achieve this and achieve this and achieve this remove all the beliefs that were according to that rugby player and as the new ones come in the, the same desire feels like it's pushing through these beliefs and almost coming through like this for what I want to do next it almost feels like that desire is more source level and this ties up my last question, I guess, in a way, is that the beliefs feel like they're after something. You know, what are we doing? We're trying to achieve this and this belief will help me get there. But I got there and one of the things that shattered a lot of my beliefs was that there's nothing there. And 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 not in a, I don't mean that in a bad way. There's obviously the immediate ecstasy and the pleasure of it, but there's no change. There's no liberation. It's almost like, and off we go again. And I went down the route of, oh, once we win a World Cup and I ticked off all the goals, it's great. And it didn't happen. So it was like, well, it's because we haven't won two in a row. So off we go to the next one. But this is what I meant before when I said about being differently constructed now is I'm interested in in something deeper that belongs here, not in the future, that belongs to an experiential connection to something more. And I want to understand how you position beliefs in that respect. For an example, a a couple of quotes that were interesting to me which I might get your comments on is is one is there's no such thing as a true belief and I just obviously that's got all kinds of contextual ram you know needs to explain but the the other one was that doesn't matter what you believe or disbelieve it doesn't bring you any closer to the truth and part of this seeking for potential what is life without beliefs of needing to attain achieve and obviously survival involves needing to feed and needing to keep the body alive but what what if anything does that conjure up in you when when looking at something deeper which may appertain to the non-physical and the spiritual aspect now again we're on thin ice to try and generalize so i'll try to do what i can is um, if we accept if we accept biologically we have drives for survival and these drives will include territory They'll include dominance of intra-group and, and outside of groups, extra groups. So even if you get your territory, then you maintain it. So, And we have to do that for survival. So there is a survival drive which is desperately pushing us forward to constantly prove ourselves and constantly increase so that we're getting better and better. So it's not a negative, it, it, and we, we sublimate it into businesses, into sport, which is clearly obvious, but it's all very much the chimp-driven side of the brain. And when we look to the other side, the human doesn't do that. The human tends to have a much more philosophical and say, well, what's the point of all of this? Let me just put the drives to one side because I'll just get caught up in life doing nothing but that. So it's not a surprise when you achieve a world 
cup and you, you, you win it and you think, right, we need two and then we need three and the chimp's never going to be satisfied. It's very rare for people to be satisfied. They might, but then they'll find another challenge. So if you've got a, a chimp drive that is so strong and clearly is in you, it is in you, then it's what I'd be saying is if you've now reached a point, you're saying, look, hang on, can we go up the other side of my brain here, me, and say, what's it all about, really? You know, now we've done that. What, where, where do I fit? Now, I don't know what you're going to give. So your philosophy, your experience life, you've got to work this out now, and this is going to be very different. So you're going to put all your drives away, all your achievements, because they're not important. You're saying, at the end of the day, what's it all about? Now, I don't have the answer to what life's all about, so I'm sorry about that. Um, I think what it is then is, like you said, you're living in the moment. You start saying, you know what, en route to getting that world title, I missed out a lot because I didn't live in the moment saying, it's great, I've, I've got that kick done right, or I've made these new friends, or you miss out, you forget the journey, and you forget to sit back and enjoy the moment you're in and say, you know, what's happening today, there's so much good that I'm just not even looking at because I'm not driven. And that's, I think, what you're trying to do at the moment, I think, is you're trying to dissociate from the drives and say, okay, they're always there, and I'll come and be a coach and that, and when we recognise it. But I'd like to, in my moments alone, to start appreciating, I've already reached the goal. It's not about a goal. It's about the experience I have in front of me. It's not a journey going to a point A. It's what's happening now to me in the moment. I think that's what you're expressing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And also within that space, I think there's a bit for me, at least a clearer relationship with purpose and passion when it's not driven towards, you know, the achievement of this, the achievement of this. It's almost like as you clear the root of that purpose and passion, it, it does feel like it's for me, there's a, there's a, an, a want to engage fully and, and touch on everything. And I think the rugby was almost sort of that desire given to, a certain understanding of, of a game that became life and to say, right, go touch all of rugby. And it was like, right, I'll do it. I need to win this. I need to win this. I need to win this award. I need to play this. I need to, but of course, I think even when you say, right, I want to enjoy the journey. It's like, well, I want to go and I want to go and smell these roses. Well, it's like, but that's the same thing. What does it mean to, to recognize something deeper than that? And I, and I love the, the idea of the, the, the beliefs, but it seems to be driving me towards where my next thing is and, and this has been I think the the reason behind the 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 podcast being called I am is almost like to say what's well, the I we're interested in not what comes after the yeah, art of the am be careful because what can be happening though is you, your your chick brain's coming in again asking where are we going now what's the yeah, new goal exactly exactly but but this is this is exactly it this is exactly it you're dead right so to say that there's that humility that seemed to be building through the career of off the other way around where it was when I was young there was a humility of just going out there and having a crack but then suddenly you win a few things and you think well I'm this winner and then you win this thing and you think I'm this winner now and now I can't afford to lose this stuff I've gained and now you long for that freedom that you had to just go out there and have a crack but now you're too busy saying well look at this yeah, bag of trophies on my back I can't have people taking these away from me but to come back to that space of like what does it what does it mean to fully engage in what you're doing does feel to at times, especially when the guys that I'm coaching is to be like, well, you want to engage in the process and almost have a guarantee of the outcome at the same t same time, which feels like 
it's like conflict. It's got to be a light bulb moment. And one of my, I have a small company and I have a small number of mentors who work with me and they're great guys. And one of them once years ago, when he first started with me, we met for a cup of coffee in Manchester and we sat in the coffee and he was very driven, a young man. And it was all about goals. And, it, and, and he said to me, what about yours? And I said, this is it. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. We're having a coffee together. And he couldn't get it. He said, but where are you going? And I said, I'm not going yet. I'm, go I'm here. I've arrived. And it was years, uh, well, probably six months later, he got back and he was laughing. He said, I got it. Suddenly, I got it. That you, can, you, you get back on the treadmill and have your goals. Then you step off and you live in the moment and you've reached it. You're in it. It's right in front of you. And so it's that ability to recognize that and not have another goal. It's just, there isn't a goal. I'm here. It's happening now. You know, and that yeah. can be very peaceful, hopefully, for people to say, wow, in this moment, let me just take the moment in. And it's a learned thing to do, but I think it has to be a light bulb moment. But I'm, I, agree. I'm, I, I agree. wish you well to get there. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I, I even just love that little mention of the treadmill. The treadmill is such an amazing thing because that's kind of what it felt like. You know, you're sprinting along and you think you're getting somewhere. And at the end of it, you kind of go, oh, gosh, still I'm on still it. where I started. I'm still <laughs> exactly. on it. And I'm where I started. I haven't actually moved. And I think from a physical aspect, that maybe is how it looks. But, you know, it, the, moving into that space of recognizing everything that, that's available is here now. And I think, yeah, I've, I've, I spent a long time looking for my now in the future and it kept me on that treadmill, <laughs> but exactly. I got fit from doing it. I got fit and I, and I and sort you did of, very well and you love playing oh, well, with a lot you. of people. I, so that was great. Well, <laughs> but as the but, last uh, passing shot for the, for people listening is, which I say to people is obviously we, we've discussed a lot of things. Some things may resonate, many things won't. And I think I'll go back to what I said, everyone's got to work it out for themselves. So anything we've talked about, or I've said that they think this, I don't agree with this. That's fine. Just throwing it out with the rubbish. Anything that we think that sparked an idea or I want to pick that idea up, don't let go. Because if, what you asked me at the beginning is I want people to have quality of life. That is you, you went to rugby. I went to neuroscience and I'm the same. My drive is to, get that across to people so they can use it in a way that gives them quality of life and that gives me a thrill i just love doing that so thank you so much for inviting me not at all no it's, it's brilliant that yeah you, like you said all this stuff you're writing in your books the, the parts of the jungle and it's it's good to know that you're there and talking this way because sometimes i sort of sometimes speak to people who are in this and they do come across like they have the answer and it's, that feels as much as, you know, when you're saying to me about, oh, you know, where am I going next? I want to go find my peace. You're like, well, hold on. You know, that's here and now. It's very similar to that idea of I've got the answer and here it is. But to hear your own humility, even in what you just said, to be able to say, look, this, I'm, I'm on my own journey and this may work. It may not resonate. It's an updating process to work with the person each time and to bring, it's like, in a way, that's kind of part of what I was saying about finding that now, you know, it's just that that absolute sort of openness as, as well as sort of having your, your revelations. It's, it's fascinating. Thank you uh, so much for joining me. Been, Thank been you. Great. That, that's whiz by. Thank great you. Great to catch up. So that's it for another episode of I Am. It's brilliant to be sharing this unfolding experience with you all. If you'd like to get in touch with either me or the guest, then all the information you need is in the show notes. I welcome all and any feedback. I really want all of you to have a hand in guiding the feel of this show and the path of the conversation as well. So just keep them coming in. 
And until next time, I'm Johnny Wilkinson, and this has been I Am. This show is brought to you by Mags Creative. The executive producer is Megan Hill-Smith. Assistant producer is Alex Macy. That's all for this week's episode of I Am. Before you go, a big thank you to Vivo Life, our podcast partner, who deliver affordable, natural and UK-made supplements straight to your door. Vivo Life perfectly embodies the principles we're discussing here at I Am, and we're excited for you to experience their products firsthand. As a special offer for our listeners, they're currently offering their biggest sale ever. Use the code IAMPODCAST, all in capital letters, to receive 40% off your initial purchase and an additional 15% discount on subsequent orders with a subscription. Visit www.vivolife.co.uk to explore their complete range of products and discover how they can help you unleash your full potential.